If you turn with me this morning to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Book of 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Uh, most of you know by this point we do have upward soccer going on on, on our, our campus right now. And one of the things that uh, I, I enjoy doing is I, I get to coach two teams. Um, get to ref a game, which I don't enjoy doing. I get to coach two teams, which I do enjoy doing. Uh, I enjoy coaching Mike and his team. Uh, but But I really just love coaching the little kindergartners. Uh, I mean, the little fours and fives, uh, none of them belong to me. That might help me uh, actually relax a little bit and enjoy it. Uh, but one of the things that you try to do is have some sense of order. Uh, and it's necessary in soccer. It is absolutely necessary to have some order. And I, every time before we kick the ball off, I set up a formation. I put two of them back near the goal, and I say, you are my defenders. You do not leave this half of the field. You defend our goal. You do not let anybody score in our goal. I try to give them the big NFL speech. Nobody scores in our house. Um, I put two up front, and I say, you are my strikers. You are scoring my goals. You are the attackers. You attack the other goal. You put the ball in the goal. And then I make them point at which goal they go to. Which goal are ours? They'll point. Which goal do we defend? They'll point. And immediately, when the ball is kicked off, all sense of order is gone. I got this one kid on my team. Every time the ball is touched by somebody's foot, all you hear is, get it! And he just takes off. It don't matter, it don't matter where he's at on the field. All four of them is a glob of human flesh around the ball. Three times yesterday, a girl on the other team kicked it out wide, and, and there was nobody back on the, I mean, there was nobody on that end of the field. And I went, guys, pause for a second and think, how could we fix this problem? We don't know, coach. So I put them in a formation. I said, if I got two who will stand here and we can stay organized, that will fix the problem. They kicked the, we kicked the ball off, and I hear, get it! Uh, <laughs> order is essential. In achieving the purpose on a soccer field, on any kind of aspect in life. Uh, and one of the things that is demanded of us as a church is that we have order. Uh, not only that we have order in kind of just the, the, the business aspects of things and the fact that we are nonprofit and all the things that we have to keep in place through business meetings and whatnot, but that we have order so that we might seek edification for all people. In other words, what Paul is dealing with in 1 Corinthians is a church that has been writing him letters that are very reminiscent of a church that is disorderly. We have divisions in our church. We have this one who wants to align himself with Apollos. We have this one who wants to align himself with you or with Cephas. And, and then there's disorder in family unity. And there's disorder within the church. And they're writing letters to Paul. And what Paul comes back and says is, guys, as a church, what you have to seek is you have to seek to edify everybody. So th there's a reason that we become church members. There's a, reasons that we, there's a reason that we unite our lives together with one another, and we sing about that. I mean, what Christ did for us, the sacrifice that he made upon the cross, the death that he gave, uh, the, the resurrection of our Lord brings us together, and it makes us want to celebrate and offer praise unto him. But what is our responsibility when we unite our lives together? What responsibility do we hold as a church member in today's world? Well, one of those responsibilities 
above all else is to offer edification of one another. And what that means, I try to teach this word to the kids that I teach, to edify one another means that you build one another up. You build one another up. The things that we say and the things that we do should always be building someone up, not tearing them down. Your call and your responsibility as a church member is not always to be honest. I had uh, the privilege of one grandmother living with me and one grandmother living right across the yard from me. And they were very two different, very, very different personalities. Grandmother that lived with me was very calm, nice, peaceful, serene. She'd come up and give me juicy fruit to chew, uh, tell me to get dressed, uh, all, all those things kind of kept life in order. The grandmother that lived across the yard, she was a firecracker. And one of the things that she believed was that if she held some truth in her head, it needed to be expressed from her mouth. She'd tell you. She'd say something and be like, Nanny, that ain't really nice. And she'd be like, it's the truth. Some of you probably said that before. <laughs> if you ain't said it, you probably known somebody who said it. If any of y'all knew my grandmother, you would have known she had said it because she done told you something you didn't like and then looked at you and went, it's the truth. Our call is not to deliver the truth to everybody in all circumstances. Our call is to edify one another. In other words, build one another up. We don't have to lie about it. We just have to seek the good in it. I was told when I started learning how to grade papers at USM by my professor, he said, you read that paper. And he said, it may take you multiple times, but in the comments that you make on that paper, you don't just tear paper apart with all negative comments. You include something positive about that paper. He said, and the reason you do that is you don't have as big a line of students at your office door at the end of the semester when you do it. Find something positive to say. And it might be, I like the title of this paper. And then everything else downhill. But you find something good to say about the paper. In some ways in life, what we're called to do as Christians is encourage and build one another up and strengthen one another. And sometimes it might take some serious effort to look into somebody's life and say, this is what I find good about you. But we need to be uplifting. What Paul says is our standard of order within the church above all else is that it is done with love and that it is edifying. Those two principles. In other words, if we are speaking with love, if we are acting with love, if everything that we're doing is driven by the motive of love, if you step one chapter back, it's chapter 13, right? It's the love chapter. It's where he talks about God's love and how it inspires true love within us. That is the foundation for what he speaks of, for it is the foundation, it's the very heart of the church, that we be inspired by love in everything that we do. What does it inspire us to do? It inspires us to build one another up and edify. So those are our principles of order. How do we know something is to be ordered? Is it love? Is it inspired through love? And is it edifying the body of believers? Is it edifying one another as Christians? If you'll look with me in chapter 14... Of 1 Corinthians, we'll read this chapter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. He says in chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, Follow the way of love, eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. Indeed, no one understands him. He utters mysteries with his spirit. But everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. 
He who prophesies is greater than one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets so that the church may be edified. Now, brothers, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring to you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? Even the case of lifeless things that make sounds such as flute or harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker. He's a foreigner to me. So it is with you. Since you are eager to have spiritual gifts, try to excel in gifts that build up the church. For this reason, anyone who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret what he says. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my mind. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my mind. If you are praising God with your spirit, how can one who finds himself among those who do not understand say amen to your thanksgiving, since he does not know what you are saying? Excuse me. You may be giving thanks well enough, but the other man is not edified. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. But in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. In the law, it is written... Through men of strange tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people. But even then, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Tongues, then, are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is for believers, not for unbelievers. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues, and some who do not understand or some unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or someone who does not understand comes in while everybody is prophesying, he will be convinced by all that he is a sinner and will be judged by all and the secrets of his heart will be laid bare. So he will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. What then shall we say, brothers, when you come together, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. All of these must be done for the strengthening of the church. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turns so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. As in all the congregations of the saints, women should remain silent in churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Did the word of God originate with you, or are you the only people it has reached? If anybody thinks he is a prophet or spiritually gifted, let him acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. If he ignores this, he himself will be ignored. Therefore, my brothers, be eager to prophesy. Do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting 
an orderly way or orderly manner. Here in the book of 1 Corinthians, he's dealing with a lot of disorder. And what Paul is trying to do is structure some of the church. And he's trying to tell them that what you've got to introduce into your church is not just order in the way of how it should be run. In other words, the polity of the church. But he's got to introduce to them that your church has to be orderly in all things. He's already in chapter 12 talking about spiritual gifts or spoken of spiritual gifts. And in chapter 13, he tells us that those spiritual gifts should be brought about through love. And if they are not brought about through love, then they should not even exist. Because if you sing with the voice of an angel, but it is done without love, it is a clinging symbol. We are told that the different gifts are different for every person. In other words, you have a different gift than I have. Nobody has all the gifts. So we know all of these things about the gifts. And then Paul comes to us in chapter 14, and he says, but these things have to be exercised in a particular order, in a particular manner. Now, what Paul is talking about is those individuals who stand up and speak in tongues. Now, I will go ahead and tell you, as you read the New Testament, you will find kind of variations of speaking in tongues. First Corinthians is one kind of speaking in tongues. If you're reading the book of Acts, it's a different kind of speaking in tongues. In other words, in the book of Acts, it's more dealing with foreign languages and the understanding of those languages. In 1 Corinthians, it's kind of a little bit more of the notion of what we're talking about. But one of the things that you've got to understand when reading 1 Corinthians is the kind of setting that Corinth is. So it is heavily influenced by kind of the Greek religions and is heavily influenced by uh, individuals who prophesy all the time and, and do these various things. So this was getting brought into the church that Paul founded. And what Paul is trying to do is give some instruction and say, all right, how do you determine what is real and how do you determine what is false? In other words, what are you going to allow as a church and what are you not going to allow as a church? And these are some criteria which he offers in this chapter. So he says, first of all, if you can speak in tongues, great. Wonderful. It's a gift. In other words, he even says, I speak in tongues. But in the church, it is required that that be interpreted. For in other words, if you are speaking in a tongue that nobody can understand and nobody can, can interpret, then it is of no value. You are only speaking for yourself. If someone can interpret it, all of a sudden what you are saying, the language that is being expressed becomes useful for those who are around. What criteria is Paul expressing here? What he's saying is if something is not edifying for the church, in other words, building everyone up in the church, then it shouldn't be done in the church. We ourselves might not be individuals who express any kind of language in tongues but we ourselves are individuals that oftentimes do things that bring attention to ourselves rather than edification of the church. Guys, it's human nature. It's human nature to want to do things and bring attention to ourselves at times. Now, some of us like to stay in the back corners and never have attention drawn to us and never have eyes placed upon us. But there are some of us that crave the attention of others. And what Paul is saying is don't do things within the church that is going to bring the attention to you. If you are standing up before the church and you're expressing some prayer within a language that nobody understands and nobody can express and nobody can interpret, then what you're doing is you're bringing all the attention to yourself. And one of the principles that Paul is expressing here is a principle that we learn probably best from John the Baptist, who had a thriving ministry when Jesus came upon the scene. 
John the Baptist had individuals walking out to the Jordan to hear what he was preaching and declare or or to hear the prophecy that he was delivering to be baptized by him. And when Jesus comes onto the scene, John says, I got to step back so that he can become greater. Guys, our role within the church, our role within Christianity is that we can get out of the way so God can be seen. Our role within the church and within Christianity is not for us to be glorified, but for God to be glorified. And sometimes what that means is that we've got to take a perspective of what is is best for the whole. What is best for everyone in the church, not what's best for me. One of the most difficult aspects of being a part of a church or any other organization is that it's not driven by my interest. You know the number one thing that drives people's actions in the United States? I won't say across the world, but in the United States specifically, the number one thing that drives people's actions is self-interest. There's a philosopher named John Rawls who writes about justice. And the number one principle that he has in writing about justice, he has the Rawlsian theory of justice, but the number one principle is that every person is driven by self-interest. Guys, if you think about it, he's, he's pretty accurate. The reasons I do the things that I do is because self-interest. That's the number one thing. I mean, that's what drives me. That is my motivation. That is my motive at heart. Now, having said that, when I bring that into the church, then I'm failing. Because the number one mission of Christ is that we die to self and that we live for God. Think about the contrary nature of that. What I am taught in much of my world, what I am taught in much of my life, is that my attention should be centered on me and my interest should be in myself. What I am taught by the church and by God and by the principles of Christ is that I must kill myself off through the crucifixion of Christ. In other words, I must die to self and I must live for Christ. That's a contrary position. What Paul is trying to get the church in Corinth to see is if they will die to self-interest and be driven by this motivation to edify one another, then you will have a stronger church. It will be reaching the goals that Christ has for it. It will be honoring God in all that it does. Paul basically says, if you don't have an interpreter for these things, then sit down. Pretty standard. In other words, if you're going to draw attention to yourself, get out of the way. And what Paul also says is this has to have an order. So in other words, if you've got three people who prophesy, you can't prophesy at the same time. Let one sit down, the other stands up, and then they prophesy. And then that one sits down, and the other one stands up. He says if three people prophesy, or three people are going to pray, or whatever you have, you cannot have disorder. Part of my responsibility and part of your responsibility as a Christian in the church is that we have an orderly worship. Why? Because if it becomes disorderly, nobody can understand anything. I taught for three years of my life. I would like to think every day I walked into class and taught that class, it was an orderly class and everything that I wanted to accomplish was accomplished. I can tell you, by reflection of those three years, that was not the case. There were some days that class was orderly, 
they liked what I was doing. They were invested in what I was doing. They, they wanted to be there. They wanted to be doing that. Or the ones who didn't want to be there was at least quiet in the corner, which is okay too. But there were some days my class was disorderly. I would like to think it was no fault of my own. We had this wonderful thing in February, or at least most Februarys when I was at Southside. They had a Mardi Gras parade come through our campus. It was a little head start across the street. And it was about an hour of disruption where you just had all these kids and families and cousins and aunts and just strangers walking through the campus of Southside throwing out candy and, and toys and like foam hatchets and, and, and all kind of stuff that they get to collect at 10 in the morning and bring back to your classroom. From 11 o'clock to 3 o'clock, you have kids with bags of chocolate, foam hatchets, bows and arrows uh, with suction cups. I, I mean, you know, some of the stuff they pass out to these kids, and I'm sitting there. Not only do you almost have like a nervous breakdown out there watching the kids almost getting run over by trailers because somebody dropped a Jolly Rancher up under the tire and they're going to grab that Jolly Rancher before the tire crushes, uh, crushes it because it's well worth a hand. I mean, it's not like you can go down to the quick stop and buy a couple of them for a quarter. I mean, you've got to get that one before the tire gets it. So you're trying to save kids' lives. Your blood pressure is about this high. And then they're like, all right, now go back in the classroom, calm them down, and teach them. Because they got foam hatches. They're chopping each other with them. I mean, it looks like Atlanta Braves game. My class was disorderly. And I can tell you, on those days, not only did I dread that day. I mean, if I could have ever remembered it on my calendar, I'd taken that day off. Uh I'd get to school and be surprised. They'd be like, hey, it's Mardi Gras day. I'm like, mm. I'm starting to feel sick. Uh, and it was legitimate. I did. I felt sick on that. You just, you could, you cannot honestly, truly understand until you've been brought into that environment and then it just put in prison with those kids for three hours saying, calm them down and teach them. Nervous breakdown. I'm telling you, it's waiting to happen. And I'm going to tell you this. If any of those kids remember Anything I taught them on Mardi Gras day, it would absolutely wipe me out because I would be fast. I mean, I will pass out if any of those kids could remember a single thing I taught. I'd have done just as good putting a movie on the screen and watching it. You can't teach with disorder. You can't teach when, when they're hyped up on candy and hitting each other with foam hatchets and shooting bow and arrows across it. And they're like, well, just tell them to put it in their book bag. Oh, yeah, that works well. It's like they forget about it. All these toys in my book bag, I'll just remember that when I get out of school. Disorder is not an environment where you can learn anything or grow in any way. And what Paul is saying is you cannot allow that disorder into the church environment. You cannot allow that disorder into worship. You cannot allow that disorder into what the church does. But we have to be driven by order. What drives our order? Edification. And love. Paul goes on, and, and, and uh, there's a number of these passages in Paul's writings where, where he gets to the point of order and he talks about two or three sitting down, taking turns, not speaking at the same time, not offering this disorder. And he, he, he says that as in all congregations of the saints, women should remain silent in churches. And he goes on and he talks about that. 
And I'll be honest with you, when you read this passage, it's somewhat confusing. If you read 1 Corinthians. Because in chapter 11, Paul tells women how they should dress when they pray and prophesy in front of the church. So here in chapter 11, you got Paul giving instructions on how women should dress. They should cover their heads when they pray and prophesy in front of the church. So that clearly states what? They were praying and prophesying in front of the church. Chapter 14, you got Paul saying they should remain silent in the church. So either Paul changed his mind within three chapters or something's going on here. Now, it's clear in chapter 11 when he says women were praying and prophesying in front of the church that there was an order to it and that he still gives male authority over it. But he clearly states that they're prophesying and praying in front of the church. So they're leading in many ways in the church. So what is he talking about when he says remain silent? Probably what he's talking about, and in some ways is speculation. He doesn't go ahead and he doesn't define exactly what he's talking about. But when he says, if you have questions, go and ask your own husbands, probably what you're dealing with is the women in the church had questions about what was taking place on in the church. And when there's a lot of questions, you can't do the things that you need to do because the females at this time period would have been fairly uneducated. So a lot of the things that were transpiring in the church, they might have had questions on. And Paul's saying it's not the place to ask all your questions when things are going on. Wait till you get home and your husband can explain it to you. You know, when Micah was born, he was born very premature. They were expecting him to be about two pounds. He ended up being about three pounds, four ounces. But I can remember the doctor walking in the room. And I can still remember the labor room that we were in. God bless PJ. I think there was about 15 people in there. All kind of doctors. They had teams of people surrounded her in between contractions. They would come up and introduce themselves to her. I'm Dr. White. Nice to meet you. Uh, and, and just moving through. And I mean, there's just a crowd of people. And the one thing the doctor looked at us and said in between contractions. Felt so sorry for my wife. Um, but in between those contractions, the doctor looked at us and went, don't ask me a question when your baby's born. I'm like, what? I got a lot of questions. I ain't never done this before. <laughs> There's a whole lot of questions running through my mind right now. And the doctor looked at me and said, don't ask me a question when your baby's born. There's a lot of us here and we're here for a reason. When your baby's born, our attention and our sole attention needs to be on your child and not on the questions you have. So I will come to your room when I get through taking care of your child and I will talk to you and I will answer any question you have. But do not answer. Do not ask me a question in this room. Basically, what he was telling me is this room has to be ordered. The number one priority in this room is your child. So shut your mouth, stand back and watch us. And then I will have time for you later. In some ways, I think what's going on here with Paul is basically what he's saying to people is if you have confusion, don't bring the confusion into the order. You know what I'm saying? I I mean, there's times that you're confused. And and, and some of us, when we're confused, we just got to get our confusion out. I I don't understand. I don't understand. And, And what you're doing is you're injecting your level of confusion into the midst of the order. And then everything's falling apart. Nobody can accomplish anything because they're trying to handle your confusion. And I think what Paul is saying here is don't bring your confusion into the order. There's going to be sometimes that you come into a place and, and, and you're not going to understand everything that's going on. There's an appropriate time to figure those things out. We have to guard the order. We have to guard against disorder. And that's what Paul seems to be saying here. This is not 
the way it is kind of taken, I, I mean, I understand sometimes these verses are taken out of context, and I, I think sometimes they're used very poorly. Uh, if you read chapter 11, it's pretty clear that he makes allowance for women to pray and prophesy in front of the church. So the only thing that makes sense here is he's giving an indication where they should remain silent, and I think that's an issue of being educated in the church matters. And it makes sense when he says, go home and ask your own husband. So this is not a prohibition against any women speaking in uh, church. It's not a prohibition. And, and you've got to be careful when you read the epistles of Paul as well, because Paul's writing these epistles to particular churches in his time. So you have to come to an understanding, and it takes a takes a great deal of hermeneutical strategy to understand what is he using as a pronouncement for all churches and what is he using in terms of this church and the situation that he's dealing with. But the point that he's trying to strive for in chapter 14 is order. And anything that is going to disrupt that order, you've got to move it out of the way. Why? Why? Because if you do not have order, you cannot be focused on the most important thing. Why do we gather? We gather to worship our God. And in disorder, you will never worship God. You won't focus on Him. I got out of teaching right when I really needed to. Because they had this invention. Um, and, and it was called a fidget spinner. And I think they've got professional, like, things going now. And, and my kids start getting And they're great. They're coming. But they're also really distracting because at first it came out of something just to kind of calm your nerves and it was real quiet and you could spin. And then they developed flashing lights. I mean, it looks like a UFO. they got flashing lights that flash and, and blink. And, I, I mean, it's kind of cool. But it's distracting. It's distracting. And, and when you're distracted, when I'm distracted, I'm not focused on what I need to be focused on. And what Paul is saying is one of your responsibilities as a church member is to know your first responsibility. In other words, your highest goal. And that is to worship and praise God. That's what we need to be focused on. All the other stuff needs to be set aside. i got to tell you, sometimes it's difficult because... As pastor, you're dealing with multiple levels of things that are going on. And there's a lot of times when I come from my office into the sanctuary, I've already been delivered three problems. Guess what I got to do when I walk through the doors? I got to somehow put those behind me. I got to deal with them when I walk out this door. But I got to worship God when I'm here. That's your responsibility as well. I understand a lot of you have a lot of things going on. And, and I understand a lot of you are carrying burdens right now that are heavy upon you. Somehow... We have to allow them things to shrink into the background so that we can focus on our God. Our second responsibility is to care for the person that is next to us and allow that order to express itself in worship for them so that they might be focused. I don't distract others with either my own confusion or with my own distractions. I allow them to worship God because it is important. Because one of the things that the church is here for is to bring us before God in worship and in praise. And the only way that we can do that is a sense of order. How do we maintain that order? Everything we do, every song that we sing, every offering that we take, every sermon that is preached, every class that we have is driven by love. 
and every single activity that we do and everything that we participate in as a church edifies one another. And if we do those two things, then we will find the order that Paul is speaking about so that we might know the God that we so, so love. Let us pray. God, we come before you this morning. We thank you. We thank you for being a God who wants to reveal himself to us. We are told, Lord, if we knock, the door will be open. If we ask, Lord, it will be answered. If we seek, we will find. Lord, you are a God who wants to reveal himself to us. We come here to worship and to praise you, and I pray that we do it in a fashion that will allow all people to focus upon you. And Lord, in all things that we will edify one another, building one another up, not tearing them down. God, allow us not to think that our highest goal in life is just to be honest with one another, but allow us to truly believe that our highest goal in life is to edify one another, building them up to equip them to be better saints in your service and in your call. God, we come before you today and we ask that the things that burden us in life, we may be able to lay them at your feet so that we might truly focus upon you, your glory and your honor, and praise you in all things. And Lord, as we are so often distracted by so many things, I pray that we might come to a place where we can be still and simply know that you are God and learn how to rest in you and in our faith. We pray these things in your name. Amen. This morning we'll have a time of invitation. Any decisions need to be made in a public fashion, feel free to come forward this time. If you'll please stand.